Um, hello, everyone. Um, my name is Bill Wolf. Uh, I am a cell and molecular biologist by, by training. And uh, I want to thank everyone for taking the time to um, attend this session. And I, I also would like to, to thank um, Secular AA and the ICSAA committee members for the opportunity to, to talk today. Um, in I'd like to say I, in 2017, I self-published a book um, entitled 12 Secular Steps, an Addiction Recovery Guide. And this talk and that book have pretty much the same two-part structure. And in the first part, I talk about the disease model of addiction. And then in the second part, I get into you know, how well of a fit the 12-step approach is. And really for me, what ties them both together is I think a secularized version of the 12-step approach really kind of um, levels up with the, the pathology of the disease really well. And let's move to um, a little bit of history of the disease model. I, I think it was really forward thinking uh, when Dr. Silkworth and um, his uh, part of the forward that he wrote for the big book back in 1939 promoted that uh, alcoholism was a disease and he was promoting empathy for the people who were suffering with this disease. Um, it really, it's amazing to think that the American Medical Association didn't catch up with that until 1956. Um, but, you know, so little was known about neurobiology and it was so limited back then that it doesn't surprise me that Dr. Silkworth in his disease model can only take it about halfway. Um, so he said it's a disease, but but one with a, a spiritual component, which um, kind of puts it in with the, you know, half, half physical disease model, maybe half something supernatural. Um, but anyway, you, the big book also went on and you, I'm sure all of you are familiar, it describes two essential traits. And I wanted to talk about those later on too, because it was amazing that they, fit so well with the current neurobiology. And those two essential traits are an allergy to alcohol and the phenomenon of, of craving. And when we look at those, we'll see that and the allergy metaphor fits really well um, with the loss of control with the first drink. There's a pathological overreaction and it involves, um, in allergy, it involves a small molecule uh, that stimulates inflammation. And with uh, the disease model of addiction, it involves a, a small molecule dopamine that works within the brain. Um, and we'll see that, and it has a tie into abstinence because really the lack of control when we drink, uh, Oh, yes. So this is a slide we were on. I was talking about an allergy and this, um, the effects of the first drink and an overreaction. We lose control after the first drink. 
And we're going to look at um, the kind of the biochemistry of that and the phenomenon of craving, um, which has to do with drive formation and it, Okay, I, I believe I finished um, this slide and we were I was talking about um, the big book kind of nailed it a little bit with allergy and phenomenon of craving. We'll see a biochemical uh, explanation of that. Um, I, I did, before we go into the pathology of addiction, I did want to uh, cover some, some misconceptions uh, that persist. You know, there's a duality um, looking at addiction as kind of half, yeah, it's a disease um, and it has a physical pathology and half um, it's, you know, a lot of people, um, e even in, even in the business, you know, uh, still look at it as maybe some moral turpitude or you, you, a, a weakness, a lack of willpower. And um, whenever I hear someone say, yes, yeah, a lack of willpower and weakness, um, I like to point out that uh, people suffering with addiction have incredible willpower. And the evidence of that is, you know, take their car, take their money, take their, <laughs> their job, geographic, move them around geographically, even um, put them in jail. And there, there's still incredible motivation to get and use, um, get and use the, uh, substances or whatever. And, you know, we're going to see, um, I'm going to address the biochemistry of that as well. And um, also traditional AA, um, I was 12 years in Louisiana and been to a good bit of uh, rural um, traditional AA out there. And it still kind of perpetuates this, hey, you know, you got to hit bottom first and before recovery can begin. And, and part of that is um, some uh, sponsors want a person to be broken enough that they'll do the steps. It kind of coerce them a little bit into, I'll tell you when you're done with this step. And if you want to do it my way, go back out. Uh, <laughs> You, until you're ready. And uh, really, that, that's, that's not going to fit in this century. Um, you know, the intervention, I was surprised Dr. Kub, uh, during his talk, said that with prevention and early intervention, that um, the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, which he's the director of, he's devoting 25% of their budget on prevention and also early intervention. Um, and he showed some numbers of alcohol-related deaths um, in, in recent um, years. And do, during the pandemic, it is in, we're talking 140,000. I mean, it, it was just an incredible number. And we all know about the opioid numbers. And it's just with, with hitting bottom being fatal this frequently, um, need to revisit that. And just one last kind of misconception. It, it's um, even I um, sometimes tend to put too much weight on one factor. 
And it, it's very easy to do. And the truth is, um, you need to look at addiction and alcoholism in a, in a more complex way as having many factors. And um, also that the, the treatment approach needs the, the flexibility to deal with different, um, different factors for different people. It, it's a spectrum and there, there's a lot of diversity within the spectrum. And it, back in the 70s, they used to talk about gateway, in the 70s and 80s, gate, marijuana and alcohol being gateway drugs. And that has given way to looking more at gateway conditions. And certainly um, I've seen papers that describe uh, addiction as a pediatric disease. And because it, it so often starts in adolescence and exposure to drugs and alcohol in adolescence is a huge factor. factor. And also the literature, is, especially secular literature, um, in 12 steps, it's catching up with the role of trauma and dual diagnosis and other factors, which is, which is great. So let's talk about the pathology of addiction. There are um, a lot of definitions, of course, include that it is chronic, it is characterized with a pattern of relapse, and um, that it, it just um, that pattern of relapse happens in the face of ever rising cost. And um, in, in looking at the biology of addiction, and when you map it out in the brain, you really see that the physical changes are rewiring the brain in, in a very specific way across uh, all addictions, whether they're substance related or activities. And that this rewiring is reprogramming behavior to, to a very powerful level. And what, what we see is uh, the transformation of the very machinery of willpower. And at the end, at the end stage, it, it's not a matter of willpower. Willpower is simply um, the motivation and the willpower is turned in the wrong direction and it has to be turned back around. So, um, we will look at three general phases of an evolving dependency, um, early, mid, and late. Um, it, it, essentially, I like to talk about um, something called the addictive drive that begins to form in the early phase. And dopamine at this point plays a huge role in initiating that, um, that addictive drive, the formation of it. And it's part of the physical changes in the brain. It's going to strengthen in the mid phase and start to become powerful enough that it will outcompete normal drives and normal rewards. And then the late phase, um, there's one dominant characteristic, and that is the the addictive drive. By this time, has become a 500 pound gorilla. It is. Um, the dominant force acting in the brain, it seems like. And so I also wanted to point out that these physical changes are long lasting and they're not going to be entirely reversible. Um, and as part of the physical changes, um, you, the triggers, um, the drive that creates craving 
and the vulnerability to other forms of addiction. You know, we can now see this at a cellular and molecular level, why these things happen. And, um, oh, I'm sorry, I know you don't see um, my toolbar, but I need to move that first. Okay, the path to dependency is paved with reward. I, I do like alliteration in the, <laughs> so the title of this slide um, was kind of fun that way, but all addictive substances and behaviors um, must go through the re reward circuit and, and through uh, the actions of dopamine. It is the gas pedal um, on that. Uh, dopamine spikes, um, dopamine rewards are reinforcers. And it, the reinforcement is pleasure. And nothing motivates people quite like pleasure does. And so we're going to chase the pleasure. Um, these reinforcements are part of, and when we look at the chemistry of it, it's the chemistry behind associative learning, um, which is, hey, get a reward is going to encourage repeat, and pain punishment is going to encourage avoidance, and it's written, the brain is um, like memory, a disk. It is uh, writable and rewritable. And um, this chemistry is doing just that. And reinforcements, of course, when they encourage repetition, it's the repetitive use and strong dopamine rewards that begin to physically um, change the brain and reprogram behavior. And now we've got the addictive drive um, in existence. So need to back up a little bit um, to look in more detail. This is going to be a review for um, a lot of you, I realize. So um, the brain is made up of specialized cells called neurons. The special characteristic of neurons that we'll focus on is their ability to receive signals and transmit that signal uh, from whatever brain structure these neurons are in and onward to other um, neurons. And so the structure we're interested in, in particular, is the reward center. And dopamine acts in several areas of brain, but here at the reward center, um, the, when, well, we're, there's gonna be neurons coming from somewhere else that have the ability to secrete dopamine. And then the neurons in the reward center have specific dopamine receptors. So it's a lock and key fit. And what happens with that lock and key fit is the reward center is going to go from an off configuration to an on configuration. And that when, it, when that happens, the um, activation is going to spread to other brain areas. I'm going to show you a map here in a second. And we become consciously aware, our mood changes. We become consciously aware of that. And that is um, the dopamine reward. And normally, so between the um, messenger neuron and the receiving neuron, we have what's called a synapse. And that's where dopamine is gonna be released. And synaptic signaling is really fast. It's normally measured in um, hundreds of a second. So 
right away, we want to take the dopamine out of here. And this is a control mechanism. We only want a pulse of pleasure coming in, one psychological cookie. Um, and so we have these vacuum cleaners that as soon as dopamine gets out in here, it's vacuumed up by these dopamine transporters. Now, the go-fast drugs, cocaine, methamphetamine, they act directly at the reward center. I'm going to show you how cocaine acts. It will block these vacuum cleaners. So, dop um, yeah, dopamine is going to stay in the synapse instead of getting pulled out. And it'll continue to hit those receptors and send a signal. Now, the, the intensity of the effect, the... Um, we're talking about you beyond pleasure. We're in euphoria now. Depends on the strength and duration of the signal. So, and cocaine is going to nuke this area. It, the dopamine just stays in there. It stays on the receptor. And, and particularly with like crack cocaine, where the blood level gets up really high and the level in the um, reward center gets up really high, that's how we get a really big effect and a really big reinforcement. Now, every system has both gas pedals and brakes. Dopamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. GABA is the brakes throughout the brain, actually, uh, wherever it occurs. So dopamine release is going to cause that reinforcement, that strong reward, and it, it, the repetitive, it's going to encourage us to do it again. And the repetitive reinforcement, we've heard about neuroplasticity, the ability to of, of neurons to change what they're doing and what they are. And this is how we start rewriting neurocircuitry in the brain. Um, and so if we're rewriting neurocircuitry, we need um, a global view of the, of the brain. This is in purple. The, nor, uh, the reward circuit and the neurons that are receiving dopamine are in what I, um, when I say reward center, I mean the nucleus accumbens because this has the neurons that can receive dopamine and turn uh, from off state to an on state and then send that signal out in a web-like pattern to the rest of the brain. So, I, uh, the VTA, this is called the ventral tegmental area. This is where the neurons that can release dopamine, they start here, they have these extensions in here, so they can release the dopamine in there and turn the, new, um, the reward center on. So, um, you know, I have to explain two areas here, and that is the limbic system. So the reward center is in the limbic system. This is this middle part of the brain. Um, if if we were looking at a, a you know a peach, the the pit would be kind of here. Um, the limbic system would be like the pit. It's in deep and central, and it's pushed down towards the bottom. So the roof of the mouth is going to be here, and you can go up through there, and you would be right in it. Um, so it's from an evolutionary point of view, it's a primitive part of the brain. It's not a rational part of the brain. Um, so 
in NA, I, my, oh, I should say my first two years of recovery were in NA and the sub, subsequent 16 years were in AA. But in NA meetings, I used to hear about King Baby of the Universe. And this is where King Baby of the Universe is. So the limbic system is, is an emotional center and it, it, impulsive behavior really encourages that. And it's, it's rather self-centered. Um, it's very here and now. And rationality and our higher functions are really in the frontal cortex and in particular, the prefrontal cortex. So the arrow points here, but the prefrontal cortex is much uh, larger than just here. This is a subdivision of the prefrontal cortex. And we assign to the prefrontal cortex executive functions, including consciousness and the ability to plan language. And in this area, judgment. And judgment is kind of conscious and also subconscious. So, and this is another inhibitory mechanism on the reward center. So now we have two sets of breaks. We have GABA um, as a set of breaks on the dopamine gas pedal here. And as we mature and build up um, good ju you know, judgment and we have a lot of you know, cortex-based development, um, it acts as an inhibitor as well. So it's another wall. And there you go. So um, we do have we do have to cover the normal functioning of this unit. And that is um, we want it, we really want it to reward behaviors that enhance life. Um, and that means, it will enhance normal drives. So we have some innate drives and um, that would be like the hunger drive, um, sex drive uh, linked to reproduction. So if we, um, if we do a behavior and it helps to satisfy those normal drives and it's kind of it enhancing them, then we, we get a little dopamine cookie and say, that's good, repeat that. Um, let's go to this. So with the, the innate drives, which are built in and active at birth, um, food and sex would be among those innate drives. And let's look at the power of psychological cookies to uh, kind of reinforce behaviors that are helping us get nourishment and helping us propel the human species into the future. So Right here on the y-axis, we, we're looking at the, the strength of the dopamine spike um, that's going to reward certain behaviors. And it's kind of a relative scale. Uh, We're not really going to have units. We're going to have a baseline activity at the reward center. And then we'll see how much a particular uh, behavior can cause a spike. And a good meal, which is nourishing us, a spike of about 150% above the baseline. Um, sex, as you would expect, is gonna come in a little bit heavier. 
and so we get 200% of baseline. And um, there you go. This is normal functioning of uh, normal drives and normal rewards. So um, let's go to the, some drugs of abuse. Um, like I said, the go fast drugs, um, meth and cocaine are going to act directly at, um, at the reward center and everything. These drugs, our reward center has evolved over millions of years. And over those millions of years, um, sure, yes, cocaine is a natural substance, but it's never been available in a very strong form. Um, you, to chew the, the leaves is not really anything like crack cocaine. Um, and so nowadays, we are exposed to drugs which provide, uh, hit that reward system so strongly that we are just not evolved to handle it. Um, and so remember sex was at 200. Well, look at this, this, is, um, this happens to be smoking methamphetamine. This by the way, is live imaging by a technique called fMRI, functional MRI where you can look at the living brain and image what's happening and where it's happening and look at activities as they happen in real time. And at over a thousand, that is five times um, what a sexual encounter could do. That is nuking the reward system. That is huge. And to tell you the truth, it's beyond our brakes. Um, cocaine here, uh, was clocking in at about uh, 350, but this was not crack cocaine. And so crack cocaine goes up even higher. I wanna talk about, so these two, they're so high because they act directly on the reward center. I wanna talk about some substances that you're gonna say at first. One, nicotine, it's kind of surprising that it is also above, um, a cigarette is above a sexual encounter. I wouldn't have guessed that, uh, but it, it seems kind of low. Morphine, you would think 200, that's within the, the normal range of a normal drive. You know, that was equal with, uh, with sexual encounter. Uh, but other alcohol, marijuana, the opioids, and nicotine, this isn't the whole story at all they're hitting a lot of other brain areas as part of their effects. And morphine, of course, is closely related to heroin. And I've seen in several studies that heroin um, is considered perhaps the most addictive drug. Um, I don't know that for sure, but I have seen, there is evidence to, to say that. And so this is strongly, um, going to initiate repetition. And with that repetition, um, we could certainly get, you know, initiate uh, the formation of an addictive drive. And there you go. So I want to expand a, a little bit more on the, on the map. This is, uh, it's kind of the same map we were looking at, but we're gonna get a little bit more into it and a little, um, a little bit more on uh, some specific areas. 
involving both the limbic system. And now we're looking at um, a larger area of the prefrontal cortex. And at the same time, I want to go back to that, uh, the big book, uh, you know, components of allergy and the phenomenon of craving. And so, you know, let's start out with the reward center once again, and the ability of, let's say, methamphetamine to, to really hit this area hard. Um, when... When it stimulates repetition and drive formation, that drive, the neurocircuitry of drive formation is going to go right through this area here in green. And um, so you see in red, we have where the reward is being generated. And when it, when it spreads out through, um, drives uh, have, they're partially embedded in the limbic system and partially embedded in the prefrontal cortex. So, and this is why drives have an addictive voice. You know, it's because, uh, you know, they are going into this area that, that has executive, executive functions. The function of a drive overall is to produce motivation um, and also to produce focus. So they're kind of, an acquired drive is kind of a content specific drive. And by content, content specific, you know, it, if um, a drug of choice is what's embedded in here in the addictive drive and triggers, we have some areas back here that are in, involved in memory formation and they can involve too. There are specific triggers that interact with this drive and can turn this drive on in, in full blast. And so, you know, we can explain so much um, of the features of, of addiction with this model. And most of this model, I'm using uh, the work by um, Dr. George Koo, who, who gave the keynote address today, and uh, Dr. Nora Volkow, who is director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, and, and so here we go, this area, during drive formation and during the progression through dependency, um, they have seen in fMRI studies, um, the investigators, that this area is being downregulated. So our areas involved in, in judgment are getting weaker and the limbic areas are getting stronger. And this kind of stimulates a, a, a limbic way of life. We'll see that later. Um, also, I'll mention the amygdala and we'll get back to it. This area here is in, can, can be involved in creating withdrawal and, and stress. And um, so now we're adding another layer. Um, besides just the positive kind of reward with pleasure, what comes up must go down. And when this area activates, it's going to act on the drive here and, uh, and cause stress. So we've, we've all heard of the, the carrot and the stick. And usually there's a man riding a donkey and he's motivating the donkey. Uh, there's a stick that holds a carrot and the carrot is in front of the donkey and saying, come on, chase the reward. But at the same time, the, 
the man is hitting the donkey from behind with a stick and saying, you, you know, and that is motivating through negative reinforcement and saying, keep moving. There, so now we have two sides to motivation. And um, this, this is quite strong. Um, so let's, let's move on a little bit and go to the evolution of dependency and addiction. And it occurs over three phases. Um, experimentation um, is the first phase. We have free will. It's, it's, a it's all about carrots. It's all about positive experiences um, in our first experiences using uh, alcohol and drugs. Um, it's purely that positive reinforcement and they work. They do their job great. Um, and they, they, you know, the reinforcement comes in the form that, hey, we feel everything is better than okay. Um, in, in the mid phase, it, we get that complication <laughs> that now we have positive and negative and the addictive drive and it's not only formed by now, but it's strengthening and becoming a dominant drive and out competing normal drives and normal rewards. What does that mean? Um, you know, not only are we starting to use it as a coping mechanism for feeling bad um, and, you know, withdrawal states or, you know, trauma and, and consequences, um, but, you know, our behavior is starting, uh, the change in how our behavior is programming is starting to send out warning signals to anyone close to the person going through this process. The final phase, we got a 500 pound gorilla in, in you know, the, the addictive drive has become a monster at this point. We have a strong addictive voice, um, it's compulsive use. And I thought I would show, the stick is greater than the carrot at this point. Um, and I drew a little sad stick. I didn't draw it, but I, this image is, copyright free, but sad stick man. Uh, so anyway, uh, this just kind of um, quick summary of each phase. Initial phase, this is great. Um, it will set up a, a repetitive pattern. A, you know, this is a phase where age and trauma become gateway conditions um, and the person with those pre-existing um, conditions may feel like that they discovered a superpower uh, that will allow them to deal with the psychological pain that they've had for some time. And if the person happens to be an adolescent, ooh, that's, that's a lot stacked against them. So negative consequences, um, I didn't bold that on this on this phase yet. Sure, they can happen, but they're probably being ignored. Um, but we do see social shift as well. And the mid phase is a very interesting phase. You, this, so this is a spectrum. I shouldn't. Now that I look at it. I probably should have said the mid phase of dependency, um, because that is um, one of the things that we see, but the, it's such diversity. Some people, if with some substances such as alcohol and maybe some prescription drugs, they're being taken orally 
the, the rise in blood levels is gradual. And so, the, you know, the, the increase in dependency and the move towards outright addiction can be decades, really. Um, it can be very functional. Like I said, in an, um, an adolescent who has, uh, you know, these bri bridging condition, uh, trauma or whatever, this could very quickly give rise to warning signs and a faster progression. Um, we do see increased tolerance is gonna to be a characteristic of this stage. And um, also I wanted to point out that, you know, there's a holistic side to this condition. And when we look at, um, kind of cognitive development and the building of things like good judgment, good decision-making, and that, that wall that also helps protect us from the limbic way of life. You know, we're, we're looking at cognitive development moves us towards independence. Um, and it just, and it does, and good judgment, and we're entering uh, adulthood, taking on jobs, taking on responsibilities, the, the, the cortex is fairly well developed and the limbic side is well held in, in check and addiction is going to reverse all that. Um, it really does. And the frontal cortex, like I showed you, is going to be suppressed and the limbic way of life is going to be empowered. And we have um, physical neurocircuitry doing all of this. Where does that come in with the 12 steps? I was uh, at a meeting one time and I had five years and I had uh, sponsored a time or two. And during this meeting, when they were talking about um, a spiritual awakening and everything, I was kind of wondering, well, what happened to me? I didn't have a spiritual awakening. <laughs> And the thought came to me that, you know what, and it took, a, this was a moment of some humility. What had happened to me was I realized I grew up, you know, and I was in my 40s. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, doing the stuff that, uh, you know, many of like my nieces and nephews <laughs> were doing, you know, in, in their adolescence and young adulthood. And it's, oh, okay, I agree. And, and that is really um, not entirely accurate. I, I wouldn't say to someone, a newcomer, what you need to do is grow up. Um, I wouldn't say to a person who had a, although it looks like that, <laughs> there, is, there is something that resembles that in the process, but it is, you know, we shouldn't, it, it is cognitive development, it's cognitive rebuilding. And I wanted to say what, um, what some people want to recover in recovery is their cognitive maturity, their cognitive development. This is a real physical pathology. If someone, you know, if we met someone with a stroke and they had physical damage to the, the motor um, areas of their brain and they couldn't, you know, this affected their ability to walk and talk, we wouldn't say to them, why don't you walk and talk like an adult? <laughs> you know, we would have empathy and say, 
oh yeah, I can see you're going to need physical therapy and physical rehabilitation to rebuild those areas. And that's really um, a part of what recovery should be doing is addressing the phys- we're addressing the physical pathology of this disease. And I, I think um, that 12 steps, even traditional 12 steps, is kind of well suited to it. And it's through step works that have inventory phases and look at character development and accountability that it actually is addressing physical um, you know, pathology. And it's, I would say that secularized 12 steps does even a better job of that. But this is um, a part of the process. And I'm gonna show you later on in the slide that you can actually image that that is pro- a part of the process. Um, they, there are researchers, including uh, Dr. Volkow, who have shown that when the cortex is coming back to normal function, you can predict um, relapse rates by, by imaging, which is quite impressive. So not only have they kind of uh, mapped the landscape of the uh, progression uh, from first use to addiction, they're now mapping the landscape of recovery, which is fantastic. So let's get to the late phase. This is um, a phase (laughs) which towards the end, it does get to be kind of stereotyped. Uh, and the behavior kind of stereotypical. Um, And it it really centers on the cycle of addiction, which I'm gonna show in the next slide. By now, the costs far outweigh the rewards. When a newcomer comes in, if I'm gonna sponsor, I I do like to sit down with them and do a first step inventory. And rehabs have been doing this for a long time as well. They call it the cost benefit analysis. But to write down all the crap that's happened last week, last month, last year, last five, when you sum up all these, co- all these negative consequences, you are directly measuring the strength of their addictive drive. By now, there's multiple uh, crisis. That's a typical pattern, crisis after crisis, drama after drama. Um, and they've had multiple attempts that have failed and they're starting to realize I'm not in control. Um, like I said, uh, I like what uh, Dr. Coog talked about, um, that in the early phase, it's all about dopamine. And in the late phase, it's all about stress and withdrawal. And he said that he spent the first half of his career um, studying uh, pleasure and the last half of his career Uh, studying pain (laughs) and negative effects. So, and in this, we can overlay, you know, early, middle, late onto this. Um, This is also, um, this diagram features the work of uh, collaborative work between Dr. Kub and Dr. Volkow. Um, And um, what I'm presenting is um, they published um, a review in neuropsychopharmacology back in 2010, uh, which talks about the addictive cycle 
and the mapping of the addictive cycle. And this, this is what we're talking about at the end phase. This is a, the addictive reprogramming is complete. There's physical changes in the brain are complete. And we begin with um, binge. Um, and so, hey, we, you know, drug, use the drug, drink, what, whatever it takes to get that relief. Um, by now, the actually by now, it's, it's very surprising. Dopamine activity in the reward center is pretty low. It's like pretty tapped out. We still get the relief, but it's nothing like it was in the beginning. And this, what comes up must come down. We get this negative effect. Here's the amygdala again. And we get, um, you know, small molecules that produce a lot of stress. So it's not only the stress coming from the outside world and in, in the form of consequences, there's such internal stress from withdrawal. And this is activating uh, the addictive drive. Um, and we get these really strong cravings in the addictive voice. But also from the prefrontal cortex, you know, the rational part of our brain is taken over by addiction. We're not thinking about right or wrong anymore. Um, the addictive drive has this addictive voice and it's telling us, don't think about right and wrong. You figure out how we're gonna get the next drug and next drink. So now we got a dope fiend. <laughs> prefrontal cortex that's always strategizing how to feed the addictive drive and everything. Um, and so, you know, I really like this, this model. And this is a, this is a, a rat um, on the exercise wheel, chasing a carrot and getting shocked at the same time, and just keeping the wheel of addiction going. And at this point, um, I really like um, that we, we hit, you know, bottom soon enough. And Bill W., when he said, we, we find a point when we can't go on any further, we, we can't do this and we can't stop doing this. And we need a power to drag us out um, from the addictive cycle. So let's talk about recovery now. Um, I do like that abstinence is an emphasis in 12-step recovery. Um, and I like uh, Dr. Anna Lemke's work. She's um, out at Stanford and um, she talks about dop dopamine. She's great. Uh, I have not read her book, dopamine, dopamine Nation, yet. I have it. I'm aware of her work and I did watch the YouTube. I'm so big on YouTube. Um, and she goes over the book in an hour-long YouTube and she talks about her 30-day um, dopamine detox is great stuff. Um, we do, abstinence is needed to restore um, some normality, restore those biochemical uh, balances in the brain and begin to reverse this progression. Um, what's great though is, you, um, I was amazed when somebody pointed out, did you notice that don't drink is not in the steps? I said, oh, yeah, that, that is odd. Anyway, the steps do promote uh, improvement of character. And I, I like the step work itself um, is encouraging cognitive recovery. 
um, particularly those, those steps that have inventory and then analysis and take some action. Um, and so three phases of recovery, I would like to look at, um, at it in, in a model that has that. Early recovery is all about uh, stabilization, steps one, two, and three, and trying to get an initial period of um, abstinence and set the foundation to, re you know, kind of reestablish normality and balance. Um, clearing the wreckage of the past, we know that four through nine, and then carrying the message, finding purpose. Um, so I would like at this point to point out that I think the traditional steps are really problematic in steps two and three. Um, and when I first saw, oh my goodness, the power is going to be God. <laughs> this, this was a, a problem. And I think there are, there are two things that traditional steps want to accomplish. And one is um, a recovery from addiction. And the second is a salvation. We all know about the Oxford group. That is the foundation by which the first 12 step fellowship AA came about and they kept some of it in the foundation. What I like about secular um, secularized 12 step work is there's really only one goal and that is freedom from active addiction. And it gets um, to secularize steps two and three will get us into an active program um, quicker. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, the slide um, I'm getting to just um, summarizes that. So it's leaner and we don't try, we have, um, if we have a basic secular framework pared down to the minimum, anyone can add religious um, goal uh, on top of that. And faith is needed in both approaches, I think. But it's whether you're going to put faith in an outside interventional higher power, or are you going to put faith in the logic, the rationality of your program um, really comes in. And I think um, as we accept more and more secularized 12-step recovery, we increase the diversity. Um, and it's a diversity that's already present in the rooms. So anyway, I do have here um, something that modifies Abraham Maslow's <laughs> hierarchy of needs. And hierarchy of needs is, can be seen as a hierarchy of drives and of motivation as well that he thought were, were driving behavior. And early recovery, we have these innate drives and innate needs. needs. And, you, you know, so early recovery is, is really a time when sponsorship is very valuable because our judgment and ability, at least mine, um, is impaired. And um, it was nice having a sponsor that I could call and kind of, you know, just complain and... <laughs> <laughs> you know, lay down all, 
all the trash and everything. And he'd say, okay, what are you going to do about it? Um, but also the meetings were, were a safe place for me. And it, it was, it was kind of reestablishing um, just kind of a safe place to be and trying to build faith that this is going to work out all right. Later step work um, was addressing more complex drives related to socialization, um, to being dependable. You know, this is the, the kind of, I call it maturation, um, that, that is going to be part of many people's recovery. Some, in, it all depends, you know, there's a lot of diversity on how much a person needs to rebuild as far as character and being a person. When we do take on standards and values and improve character with these values, we reduce stress. We reduce stress in our relationships. Um, we reduce stress in, in taking care of ourselves. And then I think I've always looked at later step work as kind of a self-actualization. You know, not only um, I love step 10, this maintenance and making sure uh, on a daily basis, building self-awareness. And are we staying to these simple values? And all, all of these are are pretty, I like to keep a simple program. And then through service to others, you know, that helps us to build purpose. And we start feeling good about ourselves. Um, and so I owe a lot to living sober. That was, a, a it, of course, it says anonymous, but it was, uh, the author was Barry Leach. Um, I think it was there's a move towards something called facilitated 12 steps, which is, it has a clinical part where they weekly, they have um, a group will meet with a licensed therapist and they'll bring in um, kind of like cognitive behavioral uh, strategies, but also they familiarize newcomers with the language and the strategy and the culture of AA and, and of NA. And it was facilitated. There are some papers, evidence-based, that shows that this is more effective than 12-step alone. And in two rather large studies, it was shown to be more effective than cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational interviewing alone. Um, and, you know, you know, it, it was here um, that I, I really got a practical guide and the practical advice on the tools and strategies that AA makes available. And like I said, um, a lot of times uh, since the 70s and on into the 80s and 90s, a lot of this was rediscovered. Um, anyway, I did promise you a brain scan of the recovering brain. And here it is. And so here's a, um, wherever you see the, the green, the yellow, and the red, um, this is brain activity. Now, this is an area that bridges both part of the limbic system and part of the prefrontal cortex. Um, and we're not, we don't need to go into specific um, areas and functions and everything. This is just overall a, a, healthy, a healthy brain. And it 
this is after one month of abstinence. So there's some activity returning. Actually, before a month of abstinence, this area would look terrible. Uh, and the limbic system would have higher activity in areas where you don't want higher activity. And then areas of the prefrontal cortex would be quite low in that activity where we want good judgment and everything. But you can see after 14 months, um, wow, th this looks pretty good. You know, we're not going to completely recover, completely reverse the pathological changes. But this, to me, um, is pretty encouraging. And this was um, part, uh, uh, like I said, part of a study that those um, who, they did some months of inpatient and, of course, uh, intensive. And then they were um, in another study doing brain scans. And if this sort of, um, you know, remediation wasn't, wasn't happening, they could predict fairly accurately who was going to relapse. Um, and so um, I'm going to talk about, <laughs> I separate, when I talk about the 12-step approach, I like to separate the fellowship and the program. So the fellowship is the living part. It is the strength of, of one addict. Um, I'm, I'm going to use some NA <laughs> literature here. The strength of one, uh, the therapeutic, um, you know, strength of one addict reaching out and helping another. And yes, as far as the fellowship, it was a great fit. And to have that social interaction again, to have this peer support, like I said, especially in early recovery, to have to be able to use sponsorship, great. It's mostly yes on this 12-step program, which is the steps and the literature and some of the practices. Um, I did reach a point and where I needed separation of religion and recovery. I am one of those, like, like you, uh, the faith I have is in the rationality of the approach. And when I build that faith, that is my step two. And my step three is getting active in the program, making a decision. Um, and you know, I'm sure many of you can re relate with what I just said. Um, you know, why push for more, more secularity uh, in the 12-step approach? And it's because it, it increases the availability, increases the diversity that's already in the rooms. And I have in rural traditional AA um, seen newcomers, we all have seen newcomers come in and not stay long. Um, and the religiosity of the program of the 12 steps on the wall is a part of it. But I've also seen that it goes further than that. And some sponsors turn away newcomers that will not work steps two and three to their, to their satisfaction. And I think there are a couple things that need to be addressed in the future. Um, AA, you know, I know it, in this conference, um, there's talks about that. It, we're, you hear a lot in any NA meeting, hello, my name is so-and-so and I am an alcoholic and an addict. You know, 
And, you know, and also um, harm reduction strategies. Um, you, there's a need to, to talk about how to adapt um, with things like uh, methadone, suboxone, you know, pharmacological re um, replacement. And we're going to see that even with um, alcoholism now, but not pharmacological replacement, but pharmacological interventions. Um, I still, uh, from time to time, see sponsors saying don't take depression meds. Um, still too often hear about sponsors saying uh, to people who are struggling with abuse and trauma, oh, you've got to pray for your abuser. You know, uh, anyway, enough said <laughs> on these. I wish to thank you for, for your time. And at this point, um, let, let's stop the formal presentation. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. Okay. That was great. A lot. I want to mention before we go on, I, uh, if, if you want to make uh, ask Bill any questions or anything like that, uh, as long as he's willing to stay, we'll stay. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, um, but I, I do want to mention if you were wanting to go to the Not an Outside Issue Forum, it starts at three, uh, as does the Marty Mann presentation. It's a presentation about Marty Mann. <laughs> Marty, Marty Mann didn't come back as a... Anyway. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and all you have to do to do that is go to the breakout room button, if you have one, uh, on your phone or whatever, and, and choose that particular breakout room. So, but you can stay here if you would like to. Uh, I would like to. Said, Bill said he'd stay, so... What we'll do is we'll use raised hands, and I will call on people as uh, as I see the raised hands. All right. Thanks, okay. everybody. Oh, here we go. So the first one is Brooke. Hi, I'm Brooke, Hi. and I loved your presentation. It was I was absorbing as much as I could, but I do have a couple of questions because I've got a science kind of background. Um, I'm wondering about these studies. Um, did you see gender differences in them or um, age-related differences in, in addiction rates and recovery rates? I'm kind of, because so yes. many studies are done based on white men and it leaves out a whole bunch of folks that aren't white or men or <laughs> yes, yes, it, that's it is true, and, and yes, there are studies, and there are significant um, differences both related to age and to to gender. I just recently, uh, like I said, Do Dr. Um, Eric Nestor, he's out at uh, Mount Sinai. He does amazing uh, work in animal models and these are rodent models of, of addiction and just for a few examples they have a model set up that reflects the human condition and vulnerability to addiction of trauma of actually of tra traumatic childhood um, which is you know during their early developmental stages and you know the rates um, by which it primes addiction, and also the difficulty with over, they can also get rodents 
um, on the wagon, but it's more difficult with trauma. He recently did a, a study and, you know, in his studies, it's, he can um, dissect molecular pathways to an amazing detail, which you can't do, of course, in, in, in humans. And um, he has done a global study of gene expression patterns um, in, and it's gender-based um, with the addiction model. And the, di the, different, the gender difference is pretty profound on a molecular level. And it really does, um, there's been human studies that look at um, alcoholism and gender-based, and this was greatly exacerbated during COVID. Um, you know, because oh, I, I did see an article too about um, COVID and the crisis with the lack of social uh, services and, and mental health and, um, you know, to have these safety nets. And the title of the article was, uh, and it had to do, uh, do with it um, somewhat with addiction and other things, you know, that in some Western Europe, European countries, they have these social services, more harm reduction, more safety nets. And here in the United States, we had women. <laughs> you know? so, and they, you know, they, of course, the burden on them, during, uh, on women during, co so many women during COVID was, uh, you know, much more um, than on, on their male, male counterparts. And that, that had measurable effects. Dr. Koob had um, on his site, uh, go to N National Institute of uh, Al Alcohol Abuse and Addiction, and he he's, he'll have some of this really updated data and, uh, and as well as the historical data. All right, thanks, Bill. Now I have sure. to call on Cat Little Creek because she's my wife. And if I don't, I'll be in deep doo-doo. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm getting to it. I just want to say thank you very much. It was an amazing program that you put in front of us. So much information. I'm going to listen to that a few times. Today, I'd like to ask you to speak to what kind of permanent damage uh, 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 addicts acquire, shall we oh, say? Yes. Um, I am not really that great, <laughs> great on that question. I, I am not a clinical person. I, am, I do teach undergraduate um, biology and some graduate biology, but I, I can partially answer that question. Um, some, some of the permanent damage is that um, the, the addictive drive is never really completely erased and it can be easily primed even by other forms of addiction. And, you know, so I'm thinking of two instances, two people I knew who had more than a decade of recovery in AA and uh, picked up a gambling addiction, which it was incredibly destructive. Um, 
And so it, and that, that vulnerability to um, just switch from one form to another, that seems to be lifelong. Um, another thing is the, the prefrontal cortex over time, um, and this, is, this varies a lot and it varies uh, a lot by substance. It, it's more than this inhibition. Um, the prefrontal cortex will waste to some degree and you can see a permanent sort of shrinkage and damage. Uh, and so what, what does that mean? <laughs> it, um, it, it's, it doesn't mean that uh, as much as you, you would think, it, it can be um, sound worse than what it is. But if someone is in the end stage of addiction and you know, um, wet brain and things, it, it, it can, it, I think you can see the physical damage to the brain pretty drastically in the go fast drugs. Cocaine and methamphetamine are both um, just physically so destructive that, and the, the frontal cortex is gonna be affected by that as well. And so you're gonna see cognitive uh, deficits, memory deficits and things like that. And that's about the extent to which I could answer that question. Thanks, Doc. I appreciate it. Thanks, You're welcome. Bill. Um, how about uh -huh. Jeb? Well, thank you so much. My name is Jeb, and I'm a grateful recovered addict alcoholic. And I first of all want to take take credit for suggesting you, Bill, for this to do this presentation. Thank you. And that is simply because I find your book of all the books. You know, attempt to be secular interpretations, the most useful. And it's the shortest one. It's only 108 pages. And it addresses the neurobiological aspects of addiction that Bilt and Dr. Silkworth tried to address. That's what they knew at that time. But the other piece that I always say I love about the book is you don't try to speak for everybody buddy in your steps by saying we did these things and we do those things it's all i statements and i think that that's yeah, a great thing and it's sort of suggested in your presentation that we should write our own version of the steps that reflects exactly what's working for us and what we have contacted through the living trying to live the process practice the steps whatever way we understand them to, to keep moving forward. And so that was really, really great. And I really expected this. I expected this to be the best, most educational event during the conference. So thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. Thanks, I hope so. everyone needs to open. I would post the link on Amazon. It's the cheapest book, too. It's only $9 and something. <laughs> and I, I, just, I just think it's, well, it, it's been helpful to me. I guess I should only speak for myself. So thank you. And today, because of this does work, I always say this in every meeting, it's day 16,135. Because it was only 16,134 yesterday. So I've always been the one day at a time guy because y'all taught me that it's important to take care of myself. That wasn't a question, just a, a flattering <laughs> comment. You know, I, I do have a comment to what you said. And I would um, like to say that, the, you know, lately I've been thinking a lot and it's not the content of the step work. 
and this is this is why I I dislike twelve step fundamentalism. You know, it's not the the literal content that's important. It's the fact that we get engaged in an active program yeah. that has us thinking. I do like. Um, you know, steps that have, like I said, inventory analysis and a plan of act, it gets us working. And the best predictor of success is not, like I said in the book, the best predictor of success is not who's saying God's got this with, with lots of heart. And I know they mean it, uh, or I've got this. It's who are you, are you showing up and are you active um, and d- doing the, the walk? Um, and that is, th- that's regardless of the approach used. Um, we're getting active is the most important factor. Right. I will make one last comment because I'm so full of it. And that is, I think it's so interesting that all of you guys who've written these wonderful books and useful books ignore what Bill wrote in the 12 and head. 12 and 12, then in the 12th step, we begin to practice all 12 steps on a daily basis so that we and those around us may find emotional sobriety. That is missing as as well as the idea in the fourth step that we form a sane and sound ideal for our future relationship. For me, that's something that has had to grow over the 40 some years that I have. And it's a longer list of my perfect ideal. But I have a lot to learn and a lot to grow. Thanks. Thanks, Jeb. And that, by the way, that last part was on page 69. So you might want to look that up. I know. Don't know where it is. It's not 96. Uh, yeah, all right. How about Tim? From Oltiwa. Hello. Am I back? Oh. Oh, am I back? Okay. Yeah. Did you did you leave us? <laughs> yes, and I got a message that my internet connection was unstable. Um, oh. It's unfortunate. I, you know, it's only a, maybe one day a month when I kind of get this trouble here, and it's it's a local issue with Infinity. Normally, probably, I have very good internet. Probably a bad well, hub. Power supply problems to a hub. Well, I'm glad that that it worked out for us to be able to get the rest of your presentation in one sort of cohesive. I will go ahead. I will go ahead and um, do the video of this. Um, I think it's important. It's going to take me some time, and I will cut out the parts where it's where it's blank and such. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, we'll talk about that later. Um, go ahead, Tim. Oh, excuse me one second. I'm, I'm getting a little bit of uh, hay fever. Okay, I'm back. Sorry about that. I apologize. I listened to a presentation about a year ago from a, someone that works in a treatment center that talked about the transmitters and all. And they highlighted that alcohol is kind of unique and that it affects several of the transmitters, while, yes. while several of the others are more specifically targeted. Does that make the alcohol uh, addiction worse or different, or is it just just an anomaly of it that it affects all several different transmitters? Um, you know, in some aspects, it does make it both different and worse. Um, 
And alcohol is uh, another, it's not as physically destructive as fast as um, meth and cocaine are, um, but it is more so than the opiates. Um, and you know, it's, um, it is, and especially on the liver. And that's why the, the mortality, the death rate from alcohol is, is really quite high. And it's, it's been high, quite high for a long time. Um, it, you know, the opioid, um, rates and, and everything, th this is quite a spike recently in recent history, you know, in the two thousands, but, and alcohol has always had this high mortality. Um, and so, but I would say that it, 10 years of, I'd, I'd rather have 10 years of opioid addiction than the heavy 10 years of alcohol addiction, because I think physically you come out, I shouldn't say it, but you come out of it better. <laughs> you know, it, it really is not as destructive. Alcohol and just the, the liver disease mortality is quite high. Half of um, deaths due to liver disease is the side effect of alcoholism. Um, yeah, and there are a lot more transmitters. Um, you know, you can block opioid receptors. Uh, this is the naltrexone treatment. And it's kind of interesting <laughs> that the blockage of opioid receptors really helps some people to um, get their uh, you know, shift from alcohol dependence. And some of them even, even drink socially. Um, so, yeah. Thanks. Um, Melanie, Pink Peep. Hi, everybody. I'm Melanie. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Melanie. Um, thank you, Bill, so much for bringing this today. Um, I've had a fascination with the topic of dopamine recently, so this is really timely. The question that I had for you specifically was, um, I hear a lot of um, talk in the rooms about, you know, when people are new to sort of encourage them to do whatever it takes to stay sober and including like, you know, drinking, um, you know, extra water and all the, the healthy things we do, but, you know, encouraging sugar intake and, um, you know, whatever it is that, that keeps us afloat. And I wonder if those other things that are potentially hitting our, our dopamine um, transmitter, you know, is, is there a benefit? They are. To, is, it, is there a benefit if the person is able in early sobriety to avoid anything that would be a dopamine hit and fast in a way um, from those things to sort of recover more quickly? if they're able to, or do you sort of suggest that people use those things to sort of taper down, if that makes sense? No, it does make sense. And it is very close to pharmacological uh, replacement. Um, and that's the way I quit smoking cigarettes with, with, was with uh, nicotine patches. This is similar. And I have seen things, you know, some 
controversy on the sugar thing. And for the reason that you, that you say is that it's keeping that dopamine access active. And you saw the, the part it plays. Cause if, if you get a little sugar rush, you're going to get the, the sugar crash as, as well. And you don't want that access to be activated even in small amounts. But I don't know that, I think that there's going to be variation in that, to tell you the truth, because in the experience of AA, um, this thing with, hey, have something sweet, which is in living sober um, as well. And I used to do it in, in early recovery based, based on what they were saying, what um, Barry Leach said in living sober. And one thing that we do need is little, we do need little dopamine spikes in early recovery. Um, and I don't know about, I think you have to think twice about substances, but one thing I kind of encourage um, with people that I sponsor is that they start to, um, I try to encourage not outright, if not outright happiness, moments of happiness, I, I always tell them, you know, along with whatever your daily routine is going to be to keep from drinking or using no matter what, please make time for some contentment in your day. Because we do need the relief from stress. Um, and we do need to start to reestablish uh, a balance of normal dope drives and normal dopamine spikes. And I think the fellowship part of being in a 12-step program is stimulating dopamine because we're, we're out of isolation and we're back socializing with people um, who accept us and are, we're forming close relationships. And does, it, does that answer your question? I think you might be muted. Yes, that does. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. You know, if you'll if you'll pardon my interruption of it, um, I got sober in '81, and there was a lot of that. Can't you eat candy and all that kind of stuff? But what my sponsor had me do was, he said, drink fruit juices because eating oh, candy yeah. is not all that great for you, but fruit juices will provide you with the with with uh, fructose and that will be helpful so i i drank a lot of fruit juices the first couple of weeks and i got really tired of them <laughs> how about kenji <laughs> kenji oh hi thanks um well bill um this um your presentation knocked my socks off it was so interesting but it was also quite challenging. I, I mean, I was really having to hang on to, you know, hang on to the ship here because I am a, um, I'm a go fast addict. I mean, alcohol and pot were also there, but it was primarily the stimulant drugs that got me. And um, 30 years ago, I relapsed after nine years of sobriety and smoked my first hit of crack um, in the first few days of that relapse and I was just instantly addicted and gone. And a couple months later it was um, slammed my first main line of meth. And then I was off on and do a yet 
farther dimension and um and that led to seven years it took me all the way to homelessness and um, lost pretty much everything but my life and um then the last 20 years have been in and out a few months sober and then going out and it's been like that right up until the pandemic hit and i found secular aa on zoom and started getting really connected here and now i'm a little little uh, less than a, a month shy of two years but i have to say your presentation right from that slide where you put up the the amphetamine graph the 1100 with cocaine at 400 and that was smoking amphetamine so i'm guessing shooting amphetamine would be 2500 and smoking crack would be 1500 but whatever i mean it just Normally, I'm a happy, I'm a pretty happy camper. I'm glad to be sober. It's like Lawrence Block is one of my favorite mystery writers and some of his characters. He's a recovering alcoholic and his, his probably greatest character is Matthew Scudder, who's a recovering addict and AA member and long time in recovery. But he describes it, they describe the recovery as every day is just hanging on that he wants to drink all day, every day. And it's never been that way for me until the switch flips and suddenly boom and i have to say the switch semi flipped here and it felt like i was experiencing both the carrot and the stick because i was remembering all that i've lost all the devastation these last 30 years and at the same time also remembering the hit and so i wanted to say that i just wanted to ask you a question about so being a stimulant addict a white drug addict you it wasn't that way at first, but after a while it got to me, and I've seen it almost everybody else I know it does it. The first hit is boom, euphoria, and then right behind it is paranoia, where you start tiptoeing around, going, ooh, you know, sure, people yes. watch me through the walls. What What is that about? Where does that fit in? You, you know, um, because it's such a big hit on the reward system, it kind of depletes it. And there's other neurotransmitters involved. And the paranoia is really related to that negative effect and the extended amygdala. The amygdala is the home of the, the fight or flight system. <laughs> and, it, it, and just, it, it is also dysregulated in um, the, the extended amygdala in, um, Evolve paranoid schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And that, that is what, what is driving it. And it's part of that withdrawal kind of rebound effect. Um, and so that's, I, you know, that's, I don't really know on a fine level um, what that is about, but it is about um, you, that the dopamine system is just, overused and, and somewhat depleted then and the amygdala is kicking in really strong um and the fight or flight system is part of it all right thanks bill how about my friend al from vero beach let me get you i have to wait a second there we go there we go i got it uh Terrific presentation, uh, extremely interesting for me anyway. And uh, thank you. 
you know, how how do I, uh, the way I look at it is, do I want my brain to work for me or against me? You know, and and and, and a lot of that is stinking thinking. You know, stinking thinking is is there. How do I overcome that? First of all, I have to have uh, abstinence in my in in my recovery. You know, how how do I change that stinking thinking? Uh, the traditionalists will tell you twelve steps are the only way to do it. The secularist guys will tell you, well, you have to have twelve secular steps. Whatever works is wonderful. What what works yes. for me is what fits for me. CBT, whatever it is. On, you know, have it on Kindle. I, I do not believe we, you know, that group think, and we can do that in secular AA just as fast. We have that group think. Yes. The magic number, 12. What the hell does that mean? You know, I have to have my program for me. That's the one that's going to work for me. You know, so I, I don't, I, that putting people in a box and we, hound, we pound on those steps, even secular sometimes. Uh, we have to, uh, the individual, it's a very, very individual thing, in my opinion. You know, and uh, I like that old saying, since we're talking about the brain here, uh, of all the things I lost, the most I missed is my, is my mind, you know, or my brain. And that was a saying I heard when I came in. And that was very true. Uh, it was a long process of rebuilding my brain by thinking, basically. Yes. Rational thoughts. I heard you talk about that. And that was absolutely, I, I love to hear things like that, especially from scientific folks. But uh, how do we get there is, is, is the big question, I think, for an individual. And, and there's just so many avenues uh, available for all of us, and I'm just rambling on here, but I really enjoyed it, and I too will. Thank you. Uh, watch it a few times. Thank you. Thanks, Al. Always love to hear you, uh, Jared. Oops, wait a second. I got a. There we go. Thanks very much, and thanks so much for the talk, Bill. Um, I I, I noticed. I've just got a two-parted question here. I noticed um, a lot of parallels between your talk and something else that I've seen. Just wondering if you've seen it, uh, Pleasure Unwoven by Dr. Kevin McCauley. It's a bit of one hour film. No. Okay. I, I just, and so that eliminates the rest of that because it's something that I pass on to uh, some of my sponsees because I think it explains stuff very well. You went into a bit more depth um, and I just wanted to see if you agreed with his findings, but that is now a moot point. Secondary, um, so it's, it seems to me like we're addicted to dopamine. Um, and dopamine is, an, is, a natural, yeah. is a natural thing and that it's going to happen all the time. How do I manage the fact that if I'm addicted to dopamine, then dopamine is something that's naturally going to occur because it occurs when I have a drink or when I, not an alcoholic drink, but um a drink or food or sex and if i'm addicted to these things then how the hell am i not going to get it addicted to all of those things if dopamine's the thing that i'm addicted to you know that is exactly what uh dr anna lemke um addresses in her uh dopamine nation and like i said I, i'm not really prepared to answer that question <laughs> well and um I, she has an hour-long presentation 
that I, I need to, to watch again, but she's correct. You know, the, what the dopamine reward system was evolved to do is overwhelmed today. Our modern environment is designed um, to overwhelm it and to get us addicted. Um, and th this is quite a problem. And I really like um, what I've heard about um, what she presents and the way she handles it. And she is a psychiatrist. So she ha also handles this um, clinically. And I just really liked uh, what she had to say about the 30 day detox and the role of abstinence in resetting um, all, all of this neurochemistry and this neurocircuitry. And so, no, you bring up an important, an important part. And this is a, um, a unique time in, in our evolution and a unique challenge because that system really is overwhelmed. Yeah, it's. I, I also recommend that book highly. Uh, uh, Lemke wrote it. It's really fascinating. Um, Jeff, would you like to come in and Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, my name is Jeff, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, one of the things that I learned when I went to rehab, uh, and it was a, an expensive postgraduate degree in addiction, uh, was kind of the, the whole how uh, drugs and alcohol work on the chemical part of the brain. Now, that's the chemical addiction, the physical addiction. That's not the mental addiction or uh, habits. But um, clearly the whole dopamine reward system, uh, and as you said, today's uh, <laughs> lifestyles pervert that to such a huge degree with uh, all kinds of chemicals and, and uh, uh, all kinds of activities. I, I mean, I understand that it was originally meant for good, but now it's the dopamine system is used for evil. Um, but one of the things that I uh, also know is that uh, children of alcoholics are 40% more likely to become um, uh, alcoholics themselves. And I remember reading, and I don't remember where it went, but reading that there is some indication that uh, children of alcoholics and drug addicts may suffer a dysfunctional dopamine system that might make people that uh, are more likely to become addictive uh, to drugs and alcohol. And whether or not there's a way of testing people that uh, are addicted to drugs and alcohol to see whether or not they have a dysfunctional or an impaired dopamine system and whether or not that could be um, medically treated. So that was my question. Oh, that's an excellent question. Um... And when it comes to the, the genetics and the molecular biology of addiction, um, Dr. Eric Nessler is one of my favorites. And he says, uh, he's one of them in, in a talk that he gave that's on YouTube. 
um, that the genetic component for many addictions is 60%. Um, and I've seen um, somewhere anywhere from 40% to, um, I've seen as low as 25% for alcoholism, but in just about any AA meeting, if you ask how many of you have you know, relatives that are alcoholic, a lot of, if, if probably all the hands are gonna go up. Um, and so this vulnerability that you're talking about is a very interesting area of research. And um, in, Dr. Nessler also looks in, into that. And the potential for pharmacological intervention is, is an area of his. I haven't kept up on recent developments, but there is something called epigenetics in, involved in, in uh, that. It's more than just, you know, um, a little bit different form of the gene. Um, experience can also affect how genes are, are acting. And, and they can, the way genes turn on and off can be changed by experience, and it, it's chem, it, it's complicated to go through the chemistry of that. Um, but yeah, even the way genes act can and turn themselves on and off. And so we're looking at genes that are gas pedals and brakes, and that can be a seminent permanent change that the brakes um, are kind of turned off and the gas pedals are kind of tweaked to be super sensitive. And it is a complex area. Uh, I can't fully address the question, but I would say Eric, um, the work of Eric Nessler is, is a good place to start. Thanks. I left a, a, a link to a video of his if you're, for anybody who's interested, it's in the chat. Um, and, uh, I'm going to call on Mike, but before I do that, I wanted to mention that, um, Bill, I believe you're going to be in the, the author's roundtable as well. Is that is that right? Yes. Yes, that's, so, that's correct. And the author's roundtable should be happening in a, uh, not, not in the one that's going on now, but uh, following that. I only have Pacific time here, so I... <laughs> I don't know. What, <laughs> I don't know what time that is, but but it should be really interesting. There's some really interesting authors that are going to be hashing it out, I suppose. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, Mike, why don't you go ahead and and uh, ask your question? Thank you. I appreciate it, Bill. Un amazing, amazing presentation. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. I've interviewed like hundreds of the world's leading brain experts on addiction and stuff over the years. And that was very, uh, I always find people that can take very complicated concepts and make them simple as some of the best people to listen to. And I, I have a couple of questions. I mean, um, but the main question really is the, um, I call it the legal drugs. You know, I run com a community of late stage and medium stage food, food addicts and sugar addicts. Um, and, you know, my concern after doing this work for a decade is that, you know, the, the, or the, uh, these things being ignored, the uh, flowers, sugars, caffeines, 
uh, nicotine, that kind of stuff. And all of the work that has been done, Anna Lemke and, and everyone, Chris Palmer, Richard Johnson, it goes on and on about these things and sobriety, these things and uh, sugar being the original gateway drug and all of them act on the same things that you mentioned. Um, and, you know, my question really is, do you have um, any other authors besides yourself uh, that focus there? You know what I'm saying? I mean, this one gentleman, Michael Moss, wrote a book called Hooked, um, free Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. And, you know, my concern, like I said, after working with late stage food addicts for many, many years is that um, it's it's just as bad, you know, sugar is just, yes. so then you, that, that's kind of my question. No, and it, it has high mortality and high morbidity. Um, sure, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes. Right. Um, and the real, it, it has, you know, Dr. Volkow looks at those and says the relapse, relapse rate is very similar to what we, you know, we think more about alcohol and the opiates and, and um, the go fast drugs. And it is, it is, and, and it's significant mortality. And it's good that it's coming up because Western medicine tends to want, want to use medications to treat the, the symptoms rather than the cause. Um, I changed, I, I had a, a really bad lipid profile <laughs> and pre-metabolic and uh when, when i'm doing well by diet it disappears i don't need a statin or you know i have the power to normalize um my lab work you know i discovered and so you know it is important because there is um type 2 diabetes in in the family and and in a lot of families like alcoholism um, and other addictions, the area you're talking about, and uh, everyone is either affected or knows someone affected. Um, it's really ubiquitous out there. And so, no, I'm, I'm not really up on who's, who's good. Um, you know, there is, there is a book about making and breaking habits that I do like, and that's James Clear, Atomic Habits. Uh, and I kind of, um, I kind of use that, uh, with, with my nutrition, some of the advice in that, in that book, because it's so practical. All right. Thanks. And, and I have to, I just can't resist saying, and please, if you haven't read Lemke's book, uh, Mike, I highly recommend it, uh, along the same line. The one thing that we haven't talked about, and I don't, haven't heard it talked about, I don't think at all in any of these presentations, because I haven't heard all of them. And Bill, you know, this is kind of my bugaboo about early addiction is the sociological, the economic, and the cultural imp, uh, um, aspects that enter into it. And I think it's part of our, of our milieu that we try and avoid talking about what in our culture and what in our society lends itself to these kinds of results because addiction is the end 
of a long journey, or in some people, with me, it wasn't so long, but <laughs> for some people, it's a long journey. And how do we intercede? Well, if I, I, I just, I guess I'm just of the opinion that a lot of that has to do with the cultural milieu, um, the history uh, in, in the various societies, and our uh, propensity to well, I, I better stop. <laughs> but if you wanted to say something about that, please go ahead. And otherwise, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, or after that, I'm going to uh, try and end this because we need you to have a little bit of a break between. These. <laughs> John, no, I, what is the Lemke book, John? Dopamine uh, Nation. Yes, and um, no, you, you bring up an important point, I, I think. Two movements that I really like um, that are fairly recent is um, a kind of secularized Buddhism mm -hmm. and, yeah, secular and awareness Buddhism. and also minimalism. I, I think that's a, that's a great movement that kind of counters this, this cultural dry you know and we're bombarded bombarded by it all the time to overindulge 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 now and also um when i think of my na experience and my aa experience na you you really there is um a difference in socioeconomic and cultural background in na it's present in aa but it's more i see more emphasis in in na and it's probably, I, my first two years of NA, which were my first two years of, of recovery, were in a large city on the East Coast. And, um, you know, it's uh, whew, a, a childhood in the inner city is, <laughs> you know, childhood, a, a lot of people, they weren't rebuilding character and they were getting a chance to maybe correct a, um, a really dysfunctional childhood by doing step work in NA. And they weren't recovering good programming. They were getting good programming from, for the first time. Um, and that means values and, and life skills and, and things like that. And a childhood that it's not preparing you for life is likely uh, priming you for addiction. And, you know, that, that plays into the, this cultural and socioeconomic. Mm -hmm. It's a huge, huge impact. Yeah, yeah it's also political. I'm going to, yes. I, I know we have one more person who wants to, but I want to ask everybody to unmute and give a round of applause for Bill. I think it was a great presentation. Oh, thank and, you. Um, and I'm so grateful you were here. Um, Fantastic and, job. Thank you. I, Really appreciate the opportunity. And Excellent. Bruce. Thank you. Yes. I mean, I have Bruce in St. Louis. Um, great talk. There's Kevin McCauley that was broke up, uh, brought up. A, a flight, naval flight surgeon who had just this fantastic talk. He came into St. Louis and it was one of the early in my recovery. I happened to see him and getting on the, gotten on the science kick because I had a, a connected addiction of crack cocaine. And in your talk, you said something that was quite gratifying to me because it mapped with my experience. 
um, there was cocaine around in the late 80s, and but I just didn't have the money for it. So there was no problem walking away from it. It was just too expensive. But then when I, and I say accidentally, because I was drunk, I thought the person was smoking pot out of a thing down in Key West. And I got I, I took a hit of crack cocaine and was instantly addicted and, and, and went on a course to like lose everything. And it, it, my, my, uh, the, uh, you, you talked about the degrees of intensity versus cocaine versus crack cocaine. So that just mapped with my experience. I really appreciated too the tone of, of the information that you put out uh, because of the, just the the attraction rather than promotion tone and that's really important to my to, to me to like listening and, and Jeb said that your book that one of the things he appreciated in your book which would be a, a real plus for me is that you say it from the first person because um, from my point of view is that it's just my point of view. I can tell, I can express what I think, why I think it, what my experience is, but I have no idea I, what the identical path or, you know, the other, another person's path happens to be. And so when it comes to recovery, whatever works is sort of a, a watchword for me, you know, which is that whatever works whatever works and what worked for me, which is non-supernatural approach to recovery, um, might, you know, I, who am I to say that people that have supernatural beliefs that that's not exactly the right program for another person to get in. Uh, it's just, a, it was a real pleasure. And I just wanted to get, I, I, I waited till the end to put my hand up, but I just, because I wanted, I might never intersect with you again. And it was just a real, a real plus to the day, thanks. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the positive feedback.